a busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and lots to catch up on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And as I was on that extra loop and coming around a bend, a van overtook a cyclist and drove straight into me on my side of the road. And yeah, he, I, I had an awful crash. There's an urgent public health matter that is as, if not more important, than substance abuse or tobacco. And that is loneliness. You know, I decided I'd do a somersault onto the crash mat. No, no, the, you know, Kevin, just, sorry, I, sorry. I'll have, have to stop you there, Kevin. That wasn't a somersault. That was a fall. <laughs> I know, Ray. Yeah, OK, OK. It wasn't a fall. It was a flop. It was a flop. Right, we'll give you a flop. OK. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I did go a bit head over heels now. I thought yeah. it was quite elegant, actually. <laughs> And we'll start in the morning on the Ryan Tuberty Show. Pro cyclist Imogen Cotter had an amazing story to tell. So first, what brought her to cycling? I think it was always a bit of a part of my life. Um, But as I was coming to my late teens, I got a lot more into it. So I became quite serious with running. um, And I was already swimming at that stage. So I got into triathlon. Um, But yeah, it was about when I was 24 that I tried out for a talent transfer programme with Cycling Ireland. And yeah. That's like you got, we did a massive leap from five to twenty-four. <laughs> well, yeah, I, <laughs> but I did ask. I, I did. Uh, well, I, I think it's just always been a part of my life. Yeah, and yeah. then, yeah, when I was twenty-four, that's when I became, I, I suppose, elite. Why um, cycling then? Because you were talking about running and yeah. and, and, and and that that no wheels involved. Yeah. So when did the the wheels come in? Uh, so yeah, when I was twenty-four, that's when I got serious with cycling. But it's part of triathlon, so I had been doing it in triathlon anyway. Yes. My dad, uh, he cycles. I have two uncles who used to cycle professionally, um, and yeah, I suppose that I was always getting injured with running, so it kind of felt like a natural um, progression. Less, of sorts. I had less injuries when I was cycling. Oh gosh, the irony is that's coming down the tracks here. Okay, uh, and how was the cycling? Tell me about where what you were achieving in in that world, and and with whom and where. So uh, when I first started cycling, it was with the Cycling Ireland Track Program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved out to Mallorca because um, we don't have a velodrome in Ireland. So that's where the Cycling Ireland hub was. Um, and I moved out to Mallorca. I was training there. Um, but after a year there, I kind of thought that I was I was on the track and track cycling is very kind of like, it's all down to the milliseconds. So I thought it was just a lot of pressure. And even though I liked the pressure, it was just not that enjoyable for me. So mm. I ended up moving to Belgium um, to try road racing. And yeah, that's that was when I was 25 and I did my first road racing season when I was 26. How, how intense is road racing? It's, it sounds terrifying, <laughs> even the, the name. I don't know why. Why, 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 is, why is it inspiring terror in me? <laughs> well, uh, it is very intense. And I suppose when you go to Belgium, it's like the mecca of like road racing right. in Europe. So you've got a lot of professionals riding there. You can line up and have, you know, world tour riders on either side of you. And I was just like completely new to it. So I didn't really have... Um, yeah, I didn't really have any experience with it. It was the best place to learn. Um, but yeah, it's very full on. It's like it's going around corners at like 40, 50 kilometers an hour. Like it's very you just have to try not to be afraid. Yeah. Well, as is, yeah, be not afraid. Isn't that what they say? Yeah. So fear is 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 yeah. an important thing to conquer. Is that, yes. is that right? Yeah, I work on my fear a lot. That's a, a big thing that I work on is like fear of 
of hurting myself or fear of like being in the middle of a peloton that's moving at like 50, 60 kilometers an hour downhill. Like, you know, it, it can be, if you begin to get scared, it can be almost paralyzing. So you have to really control your fear. How do you um, do that? How do you control fear? Yeah, I mean, I could. No, no please tell me the secret. <laughs> I really, I, I, I really, um, well, I'll sound a bit crazy if I no, tell no, you. No, no, I'd love to hear. Yeah, well. Yeah, you kind of have two, you have like two brains in your head and one of them is like the one who's telling you all the negative things. Like if you crash now, you could die or be paralyzed or something. And I suppose you have the other brain that can like control what you accept as fact. So I'm constantly like saying, shut up, concentrate on what you're doing right now. Like this, you're not allowed to accept the crazy brain yeah. as part of reality so you have the dialogue of the mad in your head <laughs> that's why i didn't want to tell you no no yeah, no, no. i think you know it no no i'm not saying you're mad i'm saying you're the dialogue the mad yeah in the sense that i think we all have inner monologues yeah but when it becomes a dialogue it, it's the problem in some ways because you've got the the straight shooting calm mm. cool voice saying you're a cyclist you're yes. really good yeah. and you're going to win this. Yeah. And meanwhile, this brat at the back of the class is shouting and throwing stuff at you yeah. saying, but what about? Yeah. Well, the more you the more you become aware of it, the easier it is to control that that fear. So Ryan brought Imogen back to the day of January 26th, 2022, when she had just moved to Spain. It was uh, a normal day. I was actually moving apartments that morning. So I had moved everything over to my new apartment and... I, yeah, I had, um, I had an easy training ride to do and I had done like testing that week on, on my power numbers and everything was looking great. Um, it was my first year as a professional. I was a national champ, you know, everything was so rosy. Um, and yeah, I went out on a training ride in the afternoon, um, and I was about 15 minutes from home and I was going so well on my training ride that I was actually coming home earlier than planned. So I added on an extra loop. And as I was on that extra loop and coming around a bend, a van overtook a cyclist and drove straight into me on my side of the road. And yeah, he, I, I had an awful crash. What did you, what do you remember do you, of impact? Because I often hear when I talk to people with about accidents, that sounds mm. are always yeah. something that seemed really important yeah. or, or at least etched in the brain. Can you t- tell me a bit about that? Yes, I I do remember seeing the van coming at me like um directly in front of me and I just remember thinking what is he doing? Um and I thought he I thought he was going to try and quickly overtake the cyclist to go back to his side of the road, but even then he was cutting it fine. Um but there was a at the apex of the bend there was a side road and so he kept he continued taking a racing line on my side of the road towards me. Um and yeah, I remember really clearly the I hit the bonnet of the car and then I flew up in the air and then I hit the windscreen of the car and I shattered it but like you say about the sounds I remember the sound of that glass breaking like it was such a sharp crack and and then I was unconscious and then I hit the road and then I woke up okay Jeepers, like that's that's terrifying. Talk about fear. Yeah. Your your fear the, the 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 horrible voice won that day. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um Straight to the memory of waking up, were you were you on the ground at this point? Do you remember that and coming to? It's like in a movie where it's kind of like yeah. slow motion and yeah. blurry becomes real. Was it like that? Yeah, it was very like that. I, I woke up and, and there was somebody holding my hand. Um, and, you know, I, I said the first thing I said was, I can't believe I'm alive. Like it was the first thing I said because I was so certain when I saw the van coming at me that I was about to die. 
And so I woke up and I was, I wasn't even afraid when I woke up. I remember just waking up and being like, I was so happy immediately that I was alive. Um, and the, the cyclist who had been overtaken was the person holding my hand and he had such a kind face. So I was, you know, I could see him looking at me and he was like, you're going to be okay. And, and I, I was trying to, in my head, like saying my mum's name, my dad's name, my sister's, their phone numbers, like, cause I was really afraid I would have like a brain injury. Um, and yeah, I just was waiting in a lot of pain for like 40 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. This kind man, do you, 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 what an interesting detail you should remember. He had a kind face. Yeah, he really, he's, yeah, he's a really kind, like very, very friendly guy. Um, I'm still in contact with him. I meet him and his wife. They live in Girona. So and I his name is? Bruce. Bruce and Faith. So Bruce happened to be there. Yes. And yeah. gosh, even his wife's name is, is, is it says has something in it too. We'll come back to that in a moment. And he's looking, he's talking to you, and is he is he suggesting that you don't look at you know? Yeah. Oh, Everyone is suggesting that look I don't at look what? at my knee. Um, my my knee was open like a flower, is how he said it. I have um, I had shattered my patella, um, ruptured my quadriceps tendon, damaged my patella tendon, uh, and I had a a my, I'd smashed my patella as well, so my kneecap was completely no. broken, and I had broken a chunk off my femur as well. Okay, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to go, but here, but <laughs> the bottom line is, you've got no, you've got Bruce looking at you saying it's going to be okay. Yeah. your body is a is a mess. Yeah, yeah. It's it's as you say, so smashed up. Mm-hmm. Um, you you eventually get what ambulance services arrive, yeah. and how were they? Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I remember the ambulance arrived and the woman asked me to say on a scale of one to ten how much pain I was in. And like I'd been lying on the ground for 40 minutes. I remember being looking at her like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and then... Would you like to ask me my favourite colour? <laughs> yeah. Or if I was a woodland animal, which one would I choose <laughs> yeah. to be? I mean, is we going to have a survey? <laughs> yeah, <it's> a <laughs> have you seen my knee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, they, yeah, they arrived and they eventually like were able to give me painkillers and, and they got me to the hospital and then... I had surgery that night and then I had also shattered my wrist. Um, so two weeks later, I had another surgery. Um, what sort of um, stitching up did they have to do of you? And uh, So, yeah, my, my knee um, was, they had to pin my patella back together. So I have like two nails in my patella um, and they had to pin my quadriceps tendon back onto my patella. Um, and I... I've had I had five surgeries last year. So in my second knee surgery, they had to like smooth all of the bone out so that my knee could move again because mm. I couldn't walk properly for three months. And Imogen spoke about her extensive injuries. Uh, I had uh, casts on both of my arms because on my left um, arm, I had a lot of cuts and stitches. And then on my right, I had broken my wrist. And then on my uh, my right leg was in a plaster from my hip to my ankle. So I was pretty much um, <laughs> immobile. I had a good left leg. That was it. <laughs> um, when, when did you start getting, I mean, you, you don't look like somebody who was in an accident at all today, yeah, thankfully, even no. though it wasn't that long ago. And you, yeah. you bounced in here like you didn't. Yeah, no, I'm I'd, very, I've, I've been incredibly, you, incredibly blessed with your my recovery. Your recovery has been extraordinary, obviously. Really, really it has been. And that was something I, I kind of struggled with a lot as well. Like, you know, um, almost like survivor's guilt. Like, why is my recovery so good? Really? Yeah, yeah. You give yourself a hard time, don't you? Well, I thought, you know, people have accidents where they're maybe, they fall off their bike at 15 kilometres an hour and they could die. 
and I was hit by a car going at 60, 70 kilometers an hour while I'm cycling at 30 and I'm alive and I'm walking and I'm independent. And it felt like not unfair, but I just couldn't understand why I was so, um, why I was so okay and why my recovery was so good. And I think like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm now doing an eye campaign with Skoda and the RSA and and I think that that's kind of, for me, that's what gave me the, you know, I had that survivor's guilt, like, why did I survive? And then I think having the the platform now to be able to, you know, talk about this accident, raise awareness of cyclists on the road, yeah. and, and like having the, the ability to do that now, I think maybe that's why I survived the accident. And In- I... I think that's for me. That's what's given me comfort. Do you think that almost there's a reason? Yeah, yeah, oh, you, for like sure. a cosmic reason. Yes, yeah. Oh. I think that because, oh, well, maybe you have to have a near death experience to to maybe get this to kind of mindset. Yeah, but yeah. I think that when you do, you kind of start thinking, okay, why am I here? A purpose. And why did I survive? Yeah, and and for me, I really did think, okay, this this accident was part of my plan, and I don't know why it was, but maybe being able to to do this ad campaign with Skoda and the RSA and maybe save a life is like why yeah. I was kept here. So somebody might be might get might walk the earth longer than they expected to because you ended up having that accident, therefore coming to talk to us about the Royal Road Safety Authority and yeah. here we all are. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's a good way of thinking through it. Yeah. I, I presume in parallel with some therapy. Oh, yeah, I did go to a lot of therapy. How's that working um, out for you? Yeah, I needed to do that. Yeah, I think I last year I got to like um, around Christmas and... I had been doing okay up until then. And then for some reason, the closer I got to the anniversary of the accident and to Christmas, I just kept um, imagining myself dying and and not being there for Christmas. And it was something I was really struggling with. And then I went to therapy um, and yeah, it really helped me kind of put things in order. Um, but yeah, it's still an ongoing process. My last question to you is, where is your cycling career now? I mean, is yeah. it has it, have you put that, away or are you still yeah I'm still I'm still cycling are you still cycling yeah yeah so I got um I was able to get back racing somehow I was able to get back racing at the end of last year so in September of 2022 I did my first race with my professional team um and they gave me another contract for this year so I am back racing I've just come from the Czech Republic where I did a stage race and and no bother yeah, well, some bother, but, you know, it's. Uh, I'm just so happy to be back doing it. Like, it's really, um, it's so good. It feels, it. I feel, I love it even more now yeah. because of what I had to go through to get to the start line. Imogen Carter from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And we're hearing so much about the leaps in technology like AI. So in the morning, Professor Alan Smeaton was talking about using virtual reality in everyday life. But Claire began by asking Alan about the fears around artificial intelligence. But all of this fear around AI, it seems there's a story every single week about this. Somebody saying, we need to stop, this needs to be regulated. What is your take on it now, given particularly that resignation we had at the start of the week? On the progress or on the regulation? Just on the fears around it. You know, all of these expressions of nervousness and, you know, we see experts in the field saying this thing needs to be controlled. Do you agree with them? I, I agree to some extent, but I'd also point out that every new technology that's ever been introduced has always sparked fear because it's fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. right? And it goes back to, you know, the introduction of computers, um, uh, calculators, uh, the internet, um, 
the weaving machine, the wheel, the car, the train, steam engines, but is everything. This, is this not different? Because the people who developed it seem to be very nervous about it. And the people who know an awful lot about it are saying, guys, we need to be careful here. Yeah, and that's possibly because we have a public face, whereas those developers of the steam engine, Stevenson, for example, didn't have a public face. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to listen, listen to him write an article in the newspaper. So you're able to hear from the developers and you're getting those um, firsthand. Probably the closest approximation to what um, what you're hearing as this news is what's called the Oppenheimer moment. When Robert Oppenheimer developed the atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project and then he saw it explode first time, he had a quote which says, I am become death, I have destroyed countries or something, it's something like that. Yes. I don't have the words exactly. And that was the first example of an inventor, well, first example that I, I can recall, of an exemptor reflecting on her or his invention and the downside consequences of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a very public outpouring of Oppenheimer moments yeah. from people who've developed but the technology. You, you don't seem to be overly concerned about what AI might do. I I think this is just part of, of you know, us going, you know, rambling into our future. And I would liken it to every other technology. Yes, I would have concerns. Yes, I would love to see it more closely regulated. How would that be done? I'm not too sure. But Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that for every other technologies, they were facing similar problems. Now, we talk about virtual reality because it's been around for a while, hasn't it? But maybe just with, let's go with the basics. What is it? So virtual reality in its most common common manifestation is a headset. And it looks for all the world like a a set of deep sea diver goggles that you wear. On front, on your head, covering yeah. your eyes. Uh, and it has built into it two computer screens, one for each eye, and it has built into it some sensors so it's able to detect when you move left, right, up and down. And you typically wear a set of headphones. And into this, you get a sensory change or sensory deprivation because you get a fictional world appearing in front of your eyes uh, and uh, in your ears and you believe that you are transported into that fictional world, that virtual reality. Mm-hmm. I saw my children uh, over the summer did one of these things where they were on a roller coaster oh, and yeah. we all sat there watching them and it was hilarious as yeah. they, they gasped and so yeah. on. And you lean to the left yes. and to the right as the roller coaster was because yeah. you were t- totally immersed. So it works it. very well for something yeah. like that, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. What else? What else, other sort of scenarios can it be used for? Well, the first exa- first applications were in gaming and, and in addition to the headset, what probably what your, your children didn't experience is that you can often uh, times have uh, uh, hand controllers which look like remote controls for TVs, one in each hand and that can control your movement of yeah. your hand. So your hand are then brought into the virtual world. And when your hands are brought into the virtual world, you can do things with your hands. You can point at things, you can lift things and move things. Uh, And the first applications, large-scale applications of virtual reality were gaming. So we had first-person shooter games and we had survival games where people would work in this fictional world and try and either shoot down the baddies and chase them or build something to survive. Mm -hmm. And, and, And... That gaming industry, which is very prominent in Ireland, um, established the baseline technologies. And then we saw other applications, in particular training and education became very commonplace because they were able to reuse these headsets, probably very similar to the ones that your kids have used, uh, and reuse them in more professionalised applications. Mm, Like like what? How does that work? In training, in in manufacturing, for example, if you're you're working on an aircraft engine and you need to practice something, you don't want to practice on an aircraft engine, so you practice on a virtual reality version of it. And you learn how to diagnose 
diagnose it. And in the medical field? In surgery is a great example for it. So you can practice on, you know, mocked up plastic versions or you can practice on mocked up uh, uh, surgical uh, surgeries in, in virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And you used it yourself, didn't you, in training? Yeah. yeah. So last year we ran a summer school for about 70 PhD students drawn from across Ireland. And as a PhD student, one of the things they have to learn, many people have to learn, is to stand up and give a presentation. And for for many people, that's easy. For other people, it can be very daunting, you know, fear of an audience. Um, So what we had our students do is give a 10 minute presentation in front of a a, a nice, docile, well-behaved audience in virtual reality. And they give their presentation. And then afterwards, we would use the data from the virtual reality to tell them individually, you didn't make enough eye contact with everybody. You need to scan the room. You need to keep everybody involved. You need to use your hands more. You need to project your voice more. And they were doing it all on their own in their virtual worlds. And then the next time or the next day, they'd know how to improve on that. Professor Alan Smeaton from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, Busting a Move, dancing principal Kevin Shortall was chatting to Ray about going viral. Now, you may have spotted an hilarious video doing the rounds this week of a school principal crashing his students' dance class and stealing the spotlight by busting a few moves himself. David Brent Stiley. That man is Kevin Shortall and uh, Kevin is principal of St Aidan's Community School in Talla and he's on the line now. How are you doing, Kevin? Hello, Ray. How are you? Good to talk to you again. Uh, Brand. <laughs> fair juice you. That's fair juice you. Like that's... You were just talking about horror movies there. That's uh, <laughs> obviously the horror genre I was trying to get, you know. So talk us through it, right? It's, it's the main hall, the assembly hall, the gym, whatever you want to call it, in St Aidan's Community School in Talla. It's a, it's a fine big... Hall you have yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it's a, one of our um, USPs here. Everybody that comes loves the gym. It's a lovely big, uh, yeah. lovely big hall, and we've a we've a really deadly PE department. So there's all sorts of activities in there. Okay, it's not just send a few people in and kick a ball. There's high jumps and archery and rowing and brilliant. Keep fit and well being and and dance and the whole lot. Yeah, so dance, so, and dance is where we'll stop. So who was taking the class, the dance class? Well, we have an outside person taking right. the class at the moment, okay. um, and so she didn't know me too oh, well. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but what was happening was one of the other, uh, one of our PE teachers, Martine, who's actually out rowing today with her rowing club, and they got loads of golds and silver. So Brilliant. well done, rowing team. They're on the way back. But uh, she was doing a video so people could watch it back to see how they were coordinated uh-huh. and so on. Yeah. And I didn't know at the time. So I ran in. But when I saw that she was videoing, I rang back out again. Because I'd often run in and, you know, if there, were, you know, if there was a match on, I'd run in and steal the ball or, right, right. you know, just for the bit of crack. As you do, yeah. And go on. <laughs> anyway, so when I saw she was videoing, I, wrote, I ran back out again. And then she said, ah, come in, do it. Come on, it'd be hilarious. It'd be hilarious. I know, no, no, no. And then she convinced me. So right. I ran in and, as you could see, I swung the jacket and busted a few moves. You, and the you, kids didn't yeah, yeah you, you come in from uh, the left as we're we're watching it. Yeah, you, that's you, the door you, into the PE okay. hall from the canteen. Okay, you removed and, your uh, jacket. I'd often, I, I took my jacket and swung it above my head. Yes, and like a helicopter style. And, yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah, and then I started to dance. Now, if I'd have known it would have gone so far, I would have practiced a bit more. Ray, because you know when you know you're going to be people are going to be looking at you I'd have probably went on a diet a month ago and practiced a bit more but I, unfortunately that's not the way these things work but anyway so I started to dance and um, everybody stopped and started laughing including the teacher who's you know just absolutely lost it and then uh, you can hear the Martina the, one of the PE teachers in the background 
roaring laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I decided I'd do a somersault onto the crash mat. No, no, you know, Kevin, just, sorry, I'd sorry. I'll have, have to stop you there, Kevin. That that wasn't a somersault. That was a fall. I know, Ray. Okay, okay. It wasn't a fall. It was a flop. It was a flop. Right, we'll give you a flop. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I did go a bit head over heels now. I thought yeah. it was quite elegant, actually. <laughs> you didn't see me. I, I stopped the video after that. If you're very good, I'll show you the rest of where I stumbled to my feet. And then, you know, anyway. But, uh, anyway listen, then, when look, I went look, over to Martina, she said yes. she sent... Sorry, sorry, Ray. No, but I was just going to say that, that you brightened up all her days. Uh, and I, I, ah. like, I, I think people should watch it. No, because there's just so, so much joy in it uh, and it's obvious to me uh, that and, and I've said this before to loads of people that the, the atmosphere in the school is is dictated by the principal and I've been in loads of schools over the years for various things and you're usually met by the principal and I, I can tell within five minutes what the school's going to be like because I've met the principal and and, and to have a principal like you they are steeped lucky uh, the, the uh, right. no, no, honestly, so honestly, honestly, I really I'm, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, Thank because you. you just went at it. Kevin Shortall on the Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, looking to the weekend and the UK's preparations for the coronation of King Charles. Now, though, anyone wandering the streets of central London in the early hours of yesterday morning might have caught a glimpse of the elaborate dress rehearsals ahead of Saturday's coronation of Britain's King Charles. Hundreds of soldiers, many on horseback, marched from Buckingham Palace past Trafalgar Square and Downing Street to Westminster Abbey. Now, the coronation is said to be quite a spectacle, but feelings in Britain are mixed ahead of the weekend's events and to take a closer look at what's going on I'm joined on the line by Royal Historian Professor Kate Williams and Lydia Starbuck who's Associate Editor for Royal Central and you're both very welcome. Uh, Professor Kate Williams I'll start with you. This is the first time isn't it that many people will experience a coronation of a British monarch. It won't be the same though will it as Queen Elizabeth's coronation back 70 years ago? Yes, good morning, Claire. Yes, uh, in 1953, so some people saw the coronation. They watched it on TV. My my mother watched it on TV as a little girl. But um, no one's experienced a coronation in the same way that we're going to see a dual coronation of king and queen because the queen was crowned on her own. There's no role for a husband in the British monarchy. and But the queen's coronation... Uh, it was a moment in time that cannot be replicated. It was the, the sort of desperation for hope after the war. Everything about the coronation was about light and rebirth. The Queen was very young. She played the movie star role very well. And there's a lot of sympathy for her for having lost her father in his 50s and thrust into the role. And, you know, there was this moment on the balcony where she sort of comes onto the balcony and basically almost presses a button and all of Trafalgar Square and the mall is lit up. And it's all about, you know, coming out of the horrors of World War II. And it's a completely different time now. That moment can't be replicated. And also it has to be said the Queen's popularity cannot be replicated. Her popularity was really very strong throughout her reign. And Charles just isn't seen in the same way. And Mm -hmm. I have seen a lot of, you know, comments saying, I'm not going, I'm not watching, I'm not... And, and, you know, now she's not around anymore. I'm beginning to sort of doubt the monarchy. So there are different feelings coming quite fast. And there's a lot more Republican sentiment, as you've alluded to there now. But also this is happening in the midst of one of the worst cost of living crises in decades. 
Yes, uh, cost of living crisis. I mean, Britain is suffering. The, the whole of Europe is suffering. These are tough times of food inflation and um, fuel inflation. And this coronation, we don't know the exact cost, but it's going to cost around 100 million. Now, a few things are being reworn, like, um, you know, obviously the crowns are being reworn. They, they date back to Charles II. But the whole thing, particularly security, costs an absolute fortune. And I think I think what's going to happen is this coronation, everyone's saying, well, it's a big thing. It's once in a lifetime. But afterwards, I, I do expect to see more questions saying, you know, is the monarchy value for money? Should mm. we move towards more towards the European model where there is less spending? And we have to remember we're the only, uh, you know, they we're the only monarchy in the whole of Europe that still has a coronation. We have to go to look to Japan or for other monarchies that still have coronations. It is a big and expensive event. Kate Williams on Today with Claire Byrne. Then later, Joe Duffy was also talking about coronations on the live line. On this day, so to speak, in 1953, the eve of the eve of the coronation, a 44-year-old man called Peter O'Brien, we believe he was from Dublin, um, stood on O'Connor Bridge in Dublin and shouted, God save the Queen, because, it's not exactly this date, obviously, but it was the eve of the last coronation in the UK. And um, that was on June the 2nd, 1953, and apparently he stood on O'Connor Bridge on June the 1st. And he was arrested. Not because apparently anyone complained, but because a guard overheard him. And we are dying to know what happened Peter O'Brien, the only man to be arrested uh, during the coronation of Queen Elizabeth all those years ago, 1953. And uh, also to see how did he recover. Apparently he was fined a week's wages which was about a fiver or even less those days. And he was fined for using insulting and abusive words. Is there any... Now, if Peter O'Brien was alive today, he'd be 114. Um, but he might have grandchildren or uh, great-grandchildren who he told the story to. Was it a badge of honour? Now, are there Irish people going, actually going to the coronation? Well, there are. And there, there's people based in Ireland heading over to the coronation. And some are, heading, some are heading to camp out, apparently, and others are heading to go into the Abbey, to go into Westminster Abbey. One of them is Simon Taylor, um, British Empire medal uh, carrier. Simon, good afternoon. You're boarding a plane in Dublin Airport. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, no, so I'm just currently in Dublin Airport, yeah. And where is the Royal Flight taking you to, Simon? London Heathrow. And what do you do next? And then I check myself into a hotel um, and then I'm going to stay overnight. And then that gives me at least 24 hours so I can't be late to the coronation on Saturday. Oh, you're actually actually going to it. Actually going to it. I have the official invite. I have my seat reserved uh, for Westminster Abbey and I will be attending, yeah. And what time do you have to be there at? So uh, 7.30, I've got to be at Coronation. That's when the doors open. Um, okay. And then all be seated by 9. And then the Coronation will be finished uh, around about 1 uh, in the afternoon. So it's, so, a long, it's a long answer. And we're free to go. It's a long answer. So what's allowed and what's not allowed? Security. So, so uh, no backpacks and stuff. Um, no, kind of no, ba- no kind bags. Of, yeah, so I've got to try and find somewhere where I can sort of leave my stuff whilst I'm there in London um, but it's super exciting I want to take some photos it does say no photography but are you allowed bring your um, mobile phone into the Abbey well of course um, 
I mean, we need to stay mobile. So I might take the odd photo. We'll see. Yeah, but what, happens, what happens if the mobile phone goes on and there's half a billion people around the world watching it? Could you imagine? Could yes, you, okay. Could you imagine? So how come I can hear the kerfuffle there as you're getting ready to get on your, your flight to London? Simon, how come you've got an invite? So, yeah, I mean, firstly, like, thanks for having me on anyway. Um, yeah. I, I did forget that a bit. But uh, I was awarded a British Empire Medal um, by Her Late Majesty um, in uh, 2020 for my service to the community during COVID-19. Okay, well um, Basically, all, all restaurants, all cooking facilities, Places were under strict orders to close, weren't they? So, okay. um, suffering from a little bit of anxiety myself because um, it was all kind of a strange time yeah. uh, to be working, uh, being all these key workers and stuff. I just said to my bosses, back with first group or air coach, as they're known here in Ireland, yeah. um, is it okay if I put on some staff meals at home? I'll cook them. I'll do the food hygiene training refresher again because I've previously worked in restaurants. Um, and I'll put them on for the staff and they can warm them up at work. And it's just a little heartfelt kind of homely meal kind of thing and just kind of bring the team back together. Um, and they were like, absolutely, of course you can. Um, sort of six, seven, eight weeks in, I was still doing it, spending 14 hours a day, slaving in the kitchen, completely free of charge, wasn't getting paid for my time. Um, and how many, and how many meals were you making every day, Simon? 80-odd, I'd say. Wow. Just to, yeah. <laughs> in, in your domestic I mean, in your domestic kitchen in my, yeah in my domestic kitchen I had a camping stove on I had the glass cooker on uh, where I was warming up pasta boiling big vats of hot water um, the top of the glass cooker got too hot that smashed and I broke my cooker as uh, some um, other media agents have sort of mentioned and then I sort of was commercially washing pots and stuff and then I broke my dishwasher <laughs> so it wasn't without its events but um, yeah it was quite fun and then before you know what a little brown envelope slid through the door about four or five months later mm -hmm. and uh, I thought what on earth is this this, this was all handwritten um, it was asking for my credentials and it was saying I'd been nominated for something or other and it was all a bit of a blur so um, anyway I called the 0207 number on the back and it was okay. it was uh it was, it was official. Uh, yeah. It was indeed. Um, and what was so, the what was the what was the honour you got, Simon? So it was British Empire Medal for um, civilian for my voluntary um, kind of contributions to the community. So it came under a classification of um, it was British Empire Medal for services to the community during COVID nineteen. Well, that's Simon on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Today with Claire Byrne, would you get yourself genetically tested to screen for hereditary diseases? Do you have a parent with Alzheimer's and wonder if you might have a genetic predisposition for the same disease in later life? Or perhaps you want to know if you're at risk of breast cancer because of the BRCA gene or to measure your chances of developing Huntington's disease because a close family relative went through that. Well, genetic testing is now widely used in healthcare, but with these medical 
technological advances come many difficult questions and decisions about just how much information you want to know about your health and when. Now, understandably, this can be a stressful experience for families. So to talk us through the process, I'm joined on the line by Dr. Lisa Bradley, who's consultant clinical geneticist and lead for cancer genetics, and also Karen Pierpoint, who's a registered genetic counsellor. Good morning to you both. Thank you for being with us this morning. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Lisa, will you explain to us firstly just how this works, how genetic testing works and why it has become so important? Certainly, Claire, and thank you for having us on your programme today. Um, If I could just set the scene and just say what DNA is, it's really the code, and you can think of it as a big, long string of information. And each of our cells has about two metres of DNA inside it. And someone once said to me, that's the equivalent of thinking about uh, 24 miles of extremely fine thread that's inside a tennis ball. And if you can imagine that in every cell of our body, and we have probably about 100 trillion cells, and this is the, uh, the, the, uh, the information that we're trying to look at to uh, try and investigate. Mm-hmm. So we may do testing that looks at a single gene or looks at a group of genes together or looks at a whole lot of genes all at the one time. And it's very important for for lots of reasons. Um, I suppose the main things for uh, a lot of the families we see with children with various uh, uh, problems such as developmental delay and intellectual disability and other uh, structural problems is that the parents are on really what we call a diagnostic odyssey. They're, They're going from pillar to post to different doctors to different specialists and they're not able to, you know, nobody's able to join all the dots together and it's often thought the child has lots of different problems whereas there might be an underlying uh, connection to it all and they reach us to try and find out what that uh, answer might be, might it be a genetic condition. And knowing that answer, you know, helps families a lot to um, really, it's just sometimes they're just relieved to have a name to put to it all. And also then it might help uh, guide them towards specific treatments or uh, management of symptoms and, and help with the wider family as well. And then there is an opportunity to identify other family members, as you, as you just touched on there, about the potential risks to them. Yeah, yes, indeed. So if we find a, a specific, uh, what we call a, a variant a, a, in a gene, a little fault, you could say, in a gene, then we may, if it's in a child, we may test the parents to see if either of them carry it, because sometimes you can carry something and be totally unaffected by it, and uh, but you could pass it on, you know, and a child could be more severely affected. And then we can offer testing to the wider family members mm-hmm. if they want it. And, and how does this work? Because there'll be people listening to this who would say, I would like to have this done, but how is it decided whether you will be tested or not? And if you opt to go privately, is that option available? Yeah, okay. So um, the first port of call is probably your GP 
or the consultant you're attending at the time. Um, because a lot of uh, symptoms or problems, they, they may not be genetic at all. And your, your uh, GP can guide you as to what other tests you may need to uh, diagnose your symptoms or to say, well, maybe there could be something genetic going on here and we'll refer you on to genetic services. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't contact us directly uh, about your symptoms, but you go to your, your GP, as I say, or the doctor you're attending. Dr. Lisa Bradley, then Claire spoke to registered genetic counsellor Karen Pierpoint. You're dealing with the emotion around these decisions uh, that people will experience as they go through this process. What is the first emotional obstacle, would you say? That's a tough one. It's a very individual um, for each patient. So it depends on, on where they're coming from. If it's a, a new diagnosis in a child or an individual themselves, it can be quite stressful. They're trying to deal with the new diagnosis, like I have this condition or my child has this condition. Um, so they can be quite upset, frustrated at maybe a delay in getting a diagnosis. Um and they just want to know more about it. Um, but other people come at it from, you know, they're worried. So that can be a big emotion. If they know that, that they're at risk of something, they're coming with the worry of what does this mean for me? Um, what will be the impact on myself? What will be the impact on my family? How do I tell my family I have this diagnosis and that it has implications for them? Mm-hmm. So as part of a um, our role as genetic counsellors, we will provide them with the information about the condition. We will discuss the risks for themselves, for family members, um, and we will explore kind of the best time to test them, um, their motivation for coming forward for testing. And we will also kind of explain how and and provide them with tools of how to kind of disseminate that information to family members. It's so important to to have to be ready to receive this yeah. information because you can't unknow it once you find out. Exactly. Yeah. It's that's so part of our role is kind of going is now the right time because yes, as you said, once you know something, you cannot unknow it. Um, and we our job is to prepare people for that is now the right timing? If they've got a bigger life event coming up, is it best to defer it for a couple of months? Um, they may not want testing at all, which many people decide actually once they know the pros and cons of testing, some people decide not to be tested and they prefer to live with the unknown. Mm-hmm. So um, how many sessions then do people have? If the, say, Let's take the example of somebody who is seeking a predictive test for neurodegenerative conditions and we mentioned some of them, Huntington's disease or, or Alzheimer's. What is the process in relation to counselling? So for neurodegenerative conditions such as HD, um, we follow the international best guidelines. Um, so they do require multiple appointments with us um, and that's usually with a registered genetic counsellor and they often have um, a, an appointment with a clinical psychiatrist kind of in between appointments with the counsellor. Um, and we take them through kind of everything, all of their reasons, their motivation, the impact that this could have on them and the wider family and their, you know, even things such as their current relationship, future relationships, family planning, um, their lifestyle. Um, and then we have a face-to-face appointment with them to discuss the results. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're always welcome to have more. Um, but for neurodegenerative, they 
there is a kind of a set they have to have two to three. Other conditions, they may only require one, depending on the condition and, and what that person mm-hmm. feels. We're non-directive and very much patient-led. Karen Pierpoint from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, a silent suffering, the pandemic of loneliness. Here's a, a report from the, the Surgeon General uh, in the United States. His name is Vivek Murthy. And he has been saying that public officials, be careful. Be, uh, there is a substance, or at least there's, a, there's an urgent public health matter that is as, if not more important, than substance abuse or tobacco. And that is loneliness. Isn't that something? I mean, it's still in the post-pandemic thing. But we talked about, long before the pandemic, we've talked about loneliness on this programme. You don't need a pandemic to, to, to be lonely or to feel lonely. Um, but it's certainly heightened it. But it's not just that. It's loneliness and isolation equals difficulty. And that's where, where we are. Let's look at the report. He said there's, this is an ailment linked to increased heart attacks. It's linked to depression, diabetes, crime, premature death. Uh, it's affecting people no matter where they live or who they are. Loneliness doesn't care how much you're worth, doesn't care about the colour of your skin, doesn't care what God you pray to. If it wants you, it'll get you. And that's what it is. That's why it's so invidious and insidious. And the US General Surgeon General urged people and public officials to treat the matter with the same urgency as other serious conditions, such as obesity or drug abuse, because it's, it's continuing to surge, affecting about half of the people living in America. That's an enormous figure. He said, right now, millions of people are telling us through their stories and statistics that their tank is running on empty when it comes to social connection. So the bottom line is that this has to be a public health priority that we consider on par with tobacco, with substance abuse, um, uh, BC, other issues that we know profoundly impact e- people's lives. And he said the pandemic has brought the disruption of social cohesion to the forefront. But as the advisory points out, the issue has been ticking up on the, on the, on the rise since the 1970s for many, many reasons, including changes in social norms, built environments, and of course, technology. Well, that's got a lot to answer for. And these changes, they say, coupled with the influx of home delivery, let's come back to that in a moment, and other changes that limit personal interactions can leave people feeling disconnected. That paragraph is key. Home delivery. Do you remember, I, I thought about it myself. I'm, I'm guilty of this. I used to go up to the chipper and I'd stand at the counter and I'd talk to the lovely people behind the counter, have the chat. Would you like salt and vinegar? Loads. And off I went home. Now, phone, app, order, Person, door, minimal contact, gone. So already there's a whole heap of social interactions. If you'd gone to the chipper, if I'd gone to the chipper, stood at the counter, I'd say, order the food and say, I'll be back in a minute. I go to the shop, I buy the Evening Herald and then, you know, or, or go to somewhere else and get, you know, whatever, a bottle of seven, whatever you're doing. You're just getting your, your bits and you're meeting people. Boom, 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 meeting people. They're all gone. All those social interactions are gone. So that's ordering in food, home delivery. I'm guilty of that. The bank, perfect example, or the post office. The bank, I feel the banks generally don't really want you to come in. (laughs) I mean, when you go in, they're they're nice, but you do get a sense that they've peeled back everything. Even the machines are terrible. I I had to ring one service the other day and the line was so crackly because clearly the person was at the other end of the world. And I have to say, the person was really good and very helpful. But again, another interaction, gone. Is your internet broken? 
It's on the phone. You're gone. Quick conversation to Manila or wherever it might be. It's gone. Next conversation, you need to get a stamp. You, well, you can buy it from the machine, although there is a great post office service I have near me, and they're great. And even the one near near me is closed down, but the one not too far away, great service. And I'm glad to say it's busy enough, and it has to be. But you know what I'm trying to say. The banks, uh, is it's all online. That's good, and that's helpful. This is not a, a, an anti-bank thing, but it is an anti-meeting people thing. And that was the thing. I've always talked about Carrie in the spiral. I mentioned her again when I worked in a spiral years and years ago. The butcher's counter. mentioned this at the Guaranteed Irish Awards the other day about the importance of shopping local, buying local and meeting local people, uh, meeting your friends and neighbours. And the, the, the very old lady would come in and she'd order because you could sell, you could buy sausages and rashers individually. She'd come in and say, can I have one rasher and one, two sausages? The next day, can I have two sausages and one rasher? And I said at the end of the week, why is this woman coming in every day? I said, she could just buy seven rashers. And, say, and this, lady, this lovely lady turned to me and said, Ryan, we are her day. We are her day. That, that, is, that, set, that summed it all up. That's all she had in terms of human interaction was that. And now the same old lady, and she doesn't have to be old, could be on the phone ordering the van to come in and collect the food and bring it to her house. Now she meets no one, just a guy leaving the stuff in the door. So this is how it happens. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not trying to sit here pontificating. I'm just observing, going, I can see why loneliness is an issue. I can see why through all these, they were chipping away at human uh, encounters. Let's go back to the piece anyway. He says, it's a normal part of the human experience. This is the Surgeon General. And loneliness in many ways is like hunger or thirst. That's how basic, I didn't realise how, how essential uh, it is to the human system. It's a signal our body sends us when we're lacking something we need for survival. Uh, but without addressing the issue, the lack of connection contributes to increased hospital visits, adds to dementia, uh, also a, a vicious cycle of anxiety and depression. And it's a serious issue. He said the social isolation can reach further, making people less civically engaged in their communities. Now, you know where I'm going here. This is back to the, the, my ongoing thing about civil discourse. People get stuck in their technology and they forget how to be nice to each other and how to have a normal conversation. If you don't agree with somebody, do you bang the keyboard and have a pile on and f cause a row and get your six and a half second dopamine hit at the expense of somebody else's dignity? Well, good luck with that. But that's not the answer. Not for you, not for the other person. The Surgeon General's advisory suggests ways that individuals and companies and public officials can start to bring people together, address the issue of loneliness. Those solutions include tracking social connection through research and, and making social connection a priority at work. How can you have social connection at work if you're working from home? You can't. You can't. And I know working from home is, is, is important for some people, but honestly, when I see more and more people return to the workplace here, I love it. I'm you know, meeting more people all the time. The desks are full. It just feels so much nicer, so much more human. I, I love it. It's not for everyone, but I'm a fan. I'm a fan of working at the desk. I'm a fan of meeting human beings. I think it's more creative. It's, it's, it's more interesting. It's better for your soul. Is it not? I mean, you, can, you can fight back. I'm listening. I'm, I, this is a two-way conversation here. These solutions, as he says, uh, talk about... Um, uh, tracking somebody yeah, through research, making social connection priority work, and community programs that consistently bring pro people together. A lot of people that uh, I encounter, says the Surgeon General, all across America and even around the world are craving authenticity 
They want to be able to be open with other people. They want other people to be open with them, but it can feel scary to do so. We have to recognise that part of that involves being able to show up as ourselves and being able to take a bit of a risk in sharing with other people, but also in listening to others and asking them how they're doing and actually waiting for, you know, an answer. We've talked about this before. How are you doing? Actually, not so good. No, don't want to. <laughs> we need to change. How are you doing? Terrible. Do you want to talk about it? I'd love to. OK, well, look, let's take five minutes and, and, and shoot the breeze. And if you want, we can meet for a coffee later on or during the week. Loneliness. How dangerous is that? And the text came rolling in. Barbara says, I agree with you. Self-service checkouts are also an example of this. No more chats passing the time of day. Well, you, you don't have to go to the self-service. It's, it's easier, but you can go to the other ones. But I agree with you. Um, although the staff are generally, who I find very friendly, they come up if you're stuck if it doesn't work and you can have a chat but yeah I know what you're saying Sheila and Galway totally agree it's so hard on the older generation in so many ways especially as they may find technology very difficult also the young and lockdown habits young people still working out of their bedrooms no chat at the water cooler I could go on and on says Sheila I don't think uh, loneliness is, for, is, is just old people I think you can be really young and be lonely and I think you can have loads of friends so called and be lonely this is not something that uh, I'm not going to get a wise a, a, a generation here I think uh, in terms of age or demographic I think this is a generation not theirs or mine or the other one uh, it's, it's something worth having a, having a chat about I was having a nice lunch in DCU uh, in the park one day says a text and an elderly lady as it happened sat beside me and we started chatting and after 20 minutes I said okay no rest for the wicked I have to go back to work and she said to me thank you for taking the time to chat you're the first person I've spoken to in three weeks I sat back down and stayed for a few minutes longer. That's really sweet. And that's a, that's a good story. Um, I'm, I'd definitely take a, a leaf out of your book for that one. Text men's shed movements fight, fight loneliness. They do. And in fact, I remember talking to the audience on the late, late one, one night, uh, not too long ago, and there were a bunch of women in the back row. And they, I don't know, I think somebody mentioned men's sheds and they said, we're from a women's shed. So there's, listen, Go where you need to be, go. Be where you need to be. Just don't be lonely if you can help it. My son is 27 years old, says the text. He's a regular good guy. Witty, good fun, hardworking. He's never had a real friend. The sad thing is he just accepts this. He knows he's not alone. But there's a lot of loneliness out there and it's really sad. What a pity. 27 is very young. Um, I wonder why he hasn't found a groove in terms of people or places or things. I hope he, I hope he finds something or they find him. Sounds like they'd be lucky to have them. On the subject of isolation and loneliness, I go to lots of concerts as a text and other things on my own. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a mingle area uh, for the interval at events where you could go to chat to other folks out there who were going to the gig on their own? That's really clever. It can be daunting to strike up a conversation with a stranger, but if we are given permission, it could really help. I'm in my 40s. I'm freelance. I live in rural Ireland. And the, look, the isolation is debilitating at times. What a very, I have a beautifully put text and a very honest text and a really good idea just to have a, an area where you can go, look, this is where people, if people strike up a conversation, that's, what you, that's why you're here in this part, the mingle zone. From the Ryan Tiberti Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, more interest rate rises and the cost of living pressure. Now the ECB is expected to increase interest rates for the seventh time since last summer when it meets today. The increase, if it goes ahead, could be a quarter or even a half of 1%. 
And inflation has been coming down across the euro area in recent months, including Ireland. Food has replaced energy as the main source of rising prices. All of this comes as the United Trade Union published research that says there has been a 76 euro drop in weekly wages over the past two years. That's due to rising inflation. For more on this, I'm joined by Harry McGee, who's political correspondent with the Irish Times. Good morning, Harry. Hi, Claire. So I mentioned this decision is being made by the European Central Bank today, but we're not sure, are we, whether it will be a quarter of a percent or half? Yes, um, I think the more hawkish members of the ECB will be arguing for a rise of half a percentage uh, point, whereas uh, those who think that inflation is beginning uh, to settle and perhaps going on a downward trajectory uh, will be arguing for the smaller increase of uh, of 250 basis points or 0.25%. Like all things to do with inflation and interest rates, it's a bit of a mind melt because there are so many different factors that have to be taken into account. As you said, inflation is beginning to show signs of plateauing, but it's still very, very high. Cantor did a study recently uh, in the last few days in, in Ireland that showed that, that uh, there has been a drop in inflation, but it's only marginal, down from a very high 16.8% down to only 16.6%. So inflation is still a big issue in Ireland, as, it is, as indeed it is uh, across Europe, where the average uh, inflation rate is said to be 14%. Uh, percent. And people can see that. They can see that in the mortgage interest they're paying every month, in the prices they're encountering uh, in supermarkets and in shops. And the only place where there is some relief in recent months has been at the petrol pumps, where there has been an appreciable uh, decrease in the price of diesel and petrol per litre. It's down 50 cent uh, or more on what it was Mm -hmm. at its peak last year. But the big talking points in recent times have been the mortgage interest rates, particularly those who are paying very high rates, up to 8% in some cases to vulture funds. And the government is coming under pressure now to offer some relief in that regard. We had the Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, here yesterday and he spoke about it being examined ahead of the budget. But then we heard that Michael McGrath is putting a bit of pressure on, on the banks to help. That's right, yes. Um, So um, in the past, uh, anybody who had a tracker mortgage uh, essentially had the golden ticket, uh, but not anymore because with the increase in interest rates uh, at ECB level, uh, the tracker mortgage is not attractive anymore. So it's all to do with those who have, have fixed mortgage rates who have been the biggest beneficiaries of late. The difficulty, Claire, is for those who are with non-bank players, the so-called vulture funds. And in some cases, there's been a very uh, uh, sharp uh, increase in, in the variable interest rates that they've been paying. And it has led to Sinn Féin and Pierce Doherty in particular uh, consistently calling for some form of mortgage interest relief scheme to be announced by government. The latest Sinn Féin one uh, has called for a... a a scheme that would pay or that would give relief up to €1,500 per annum and that would cost the Exchequer some €400 million. uh, Irish Times journalist Harry McGee from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.